Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Clothes make the man. Mark Twain is often cited as the source of that famous phrase, but versions of it are found back in the works of Shakespeare, Erasmus, even Homer. We also find the sentiment in the second half of Ephesians, where Paul tells us to strip off the old man and instead put on Christ. And he uses garment uh, words for that. And later in the back half of Ephesians, we'll have that famous passage about putting on the armor of God uh, so we can be ready for the mission ahead. Take off the old self, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, and put on the new self so you can walk worthy of your calling. That's the section that we're in. That's the thrust of chapter 4. That's what Paul commanded, but how does that work out in real life, day-to-day terms? Well, that's what our text provides tonight, and really the rest of the book is going to give uh, explanation, detailed explanation of what Paul means by these things. He starts here to give us the real practicalities of Christianity. By the end of the letter, he will have covered many aspects of life, our words, our actions, our attitudes, our relationships in our family, relationships with the world around us, um, our, our perspective on our place in the world. He gives all of these practicalities. Some of the things he talks about are very elementary Uh, As we read these verses, maybe you thought, yeah, that's kind of a no-brainer, some of that stuff. But these early Christians in the first century were, in some cases, learning the most basic ethical lessons. They came out of uh, abject paganism, a crazy culture that had a completely different perspective on what was right, what was wrong, what was uh, a virtue, and what was a vice. We may think we've come a long way from needing to be told that we shouldn't lie or steal. But on the other hand, don't we really need to be told that in our heart of hearts all the time? Or beyond ourselves, look around. Take a look around. Uh, Does our culture need to be told basic ethical lessons? I think we do. We live in a culture that is coming apart at the seams. Spend as little time on the internet as you can because, man, it's just distressing out there to see what people are doing, why they do it, how they think, how they're being just uh, led by their passions and their desires, how, how our culture is just prizes people with no principles or principles that they receive from a celebrity or from this pundit or whatever. We're just coming apart at the seams. The foundations of ethics and morality are crumbling in the American culture. Those who don't know the Lord do need the basic ethical lessons of the Bible. 
And those of us who have been instructed in these things, we can always benefit from a reminder of the fundamentals. Doesn't matter how good of a player you are, you can always benefit from taking a look at the fundamentals. Because left as we are in our fallen human nature that we still struggle with, even if you're a Christian here tonight, Paul talks about this in the book of Romans that, hey, even if you're born again, we still have this, what is called the old nature, the old man, the flesh, that propensity to rebel against God, to not go God's way, to give in to sin and temptation. We struggle with that fallen human nature. And if we are left as we are in that fallen human nature, we will deteriorate into lying, thieving, shouting monsters who cause pain to those around us. That's what sin does. But thanks to the grace of God, we as God's people are empowered to take off that old nature, which was put to death on the cross, and instead put on Christ. And with him, a powerful living newness that generates an overflow of grace in our relationships with other people and with the Lord himself. So let's start taking a look at these things in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. So this is the third of four therefores between chapter four, verse one, and chapter five, verse one. There's other therefores in the book too, but just in that that space, there's, there's four therefores. Therefore, walk worthy. Therefore, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Therefore, put away certain behaviors and instead put on other behaviors. That's the one we're in tonight. And then therefore, imitate God. And so we have these things stacked together. The therefores that Paul is talking about, they flow out of the mysteries and the truths and the wonderful things that he explained in the first three chapters of the book. Remember, all of the, he was just overflowing with excitement to tell us and tell his readers about the realities of what God has done on their behalf. How God started working on our behalf from before time began, before you existed, before the world existed, in eternity past, God thought of you, planned all sorts of things for you, carved out a life for you, and decided to to call you to himself so that you could walk with him. And so flowing from those realities that have been revealed to us in chapters one through three, therefore, we get to respond. All that God has provided, all he's called us to, all he's chosen and predestined us for, all that he's accomplished and is accomplishing in our lives and in the history of humankind, therefore, we can now put on the equipment, operate in the power, and experience the transformation of salvation. This is how we exercise our faith. This is how we work it out. This is how we put the power of God into practice. Paul begins by saying, put away lying. Another way of reading it would be strip off falsehood. He's still using clothing words. He's using the same verbs that he used in the last passage where he talks about take off the old man and put on the new man. Why do we lie? Why is it one of the first things we do as very little children? We don't know how to do anything, but we know how to lie, right? It's an amazing, it's an amazing reality of, of human experience. We lie because we either want something for ourselves or we don't want someone to know the truth about us, right? But either way, we lie to manipulate or to excuse ourselves or to cover guilt. It's always a selfish action. It's always because we want to control what is known or not known about the situation and we're trying to get to a, a certain result based off of our changing the truth. 
One of the big themes of Ephesians is that your life is not just about you. Your life is part of a whole work that God is doing, and he has specifically scattered you into a time and place in human history so that he can connect you with other people, which are called living stones in the church. And he can knit you together with them. Your life is not just about you. Your life is meant to be joined into the massive ongoing work of God. Your life has been designed and handcrafted masterfully so that you can be connected to certain other people. And so we find that we're not just, we're not just individuals now, and we're not even just sons and daughters in, in the household of God. We are also neighbors now. It's a term that applies to each of us and all of us. Notice what Paul said there. Speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. You are a neighbor, and the people sitting on either side of you are neighbors as well. And so the question is, well, who is my neighbor, right? Well, that was a question someone asked Jesus, and he gave one of the greatest parables of all time. Who's your neighbor? Let me tell you about that. And it's a a beautiful, beautiful piece of scripture that we can spend lots of time in. If you're a Christian, God wants you to see yourself as a neighbor to the people around you. And when it comes to other Christians, you're even more than a neighbor. You are members of one another. You are living stones conjoined and hopefully harmonizing together as you walk with the Lord. This proves to be a challenge in our individualistic culture. America has always prized and loved and venerated individuality, but I would say now coming out of the pandemic, individualism has taken on even a new character, a new malignancy. Because now, after all of these years, a lot of people were conditioned or told to think of others, just others generally, maybe as enemies, maybe as infectors, maybe as the source of all the problems in the world. If you watch the news, if you spend time on social media, are others seen as a good thing or a bad thing? They're almost always painted in a negative light. The others are the ones who don't think the way you think. The others are the ones that are causing this problem, that problem, or every problem. The others are the ones that need to be sent away somewhere, dealt with, maybe killed, maybe imprisoned. Everybody wants to call everybody a fascist. Everybody wants to lock everybody up. Everybody is up in arms and people are rumbling. Are we headed to another civil war? Are we headed to World War III? We can't, you know, we can't decide. Are we going to Civil War II or World War III or both? And you see that people in the, in the media are excited about this, this adversarial relationship and the isolation that we all just need to isolate and, and pull into our own individual experience and others are bad. Push them away. Get rid of them. It's a malignant individualism. Paul is going to remind us again and again that the unity of the people God has gathered together to be in his church is an essential part of our lives here on the earth. And this is also really important, especially in our culture and society right now. He's going to remind us that our struggle in life, whatever struggle you're facing, our struggle in life isn't against the other's flesh and blood around us. It is against spiritual forces of evil. The Christian life is about community. Yes, you have an individual faith, and you are an individual part in God's work. You're going to stand before God individually, 
But at the same time, we are always connected to others and we always have a responsibility to others in God's economy to build them up, to unify together, to grow as we each walk with the Lord. And so we are to put off lying and live by the truth. We don't just give the Lord lip service. Instead, we live with our lips in service to the truth. Because as we see again and again in this book, words matter, truth matters, our speech matters, and we want to mobilize it in glory and service to the king. Verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. So these verses are often yanked out of the passage and sort of isolated when, when people want to talk about anger and, and why we shouldn't be angry and things like that. Generally, when you read this, the idea is, hey, listen, anger is not good. Uh, but we all get angry, so if you do get angry, don't sin and make sure you deal with it by bedtime. Right? I'm guessing that a lot of you have heard a devotional, a message, an article that basically says that anger happens, you, we probably don't want it to happen, so just don't let it happen too much. But does that make sense? Does that understanding make sense in the context of what Paul is saying in this section? Does that make sense at all with the way God treats other sins and other uh, traps in, in the Christian life? Does he say, well, if you're going to step into a trap, just step one toe into it and then try to get out of it, you know, by the end of the day. That doesn't make any sense at all. If I took out anger and put in a different sin, would we feel comfortable with that kind of general interpretation that, well, if you have to get angry, you're going to get angry. Just, just, you know, keep it to a dull roar. <laughs> Can we substitute gluttony? Can we substitute lust? Can we substitute any of these other things? We would, we would be uncomfortable with that because it's a stupid interpretation, right? Now, in the context of the passage, what do we see? Paul, multiple times, again and again, he presents a do-don't formula don't lie, speak the truth. Don't steal, work honestly. Don't rage and be resentful toward others. Be compassionate and kind toward him. But then here, well, you're going to be angry. What are you going to do? I guess just don't do it too much. It doesn't fit at all with the way that Paul has been talking. What has he been saying? Strip off lying. Put it away. Get rid of the old man right now. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. Not, you can walk as the Gentiles do until bedtime right? There are a couple of really great papers that, that demonstrate Paul is not saying if you get angry or when you're tempted to anger or be angry if you must, but that he is commanding the Ephesians, be angry. What's going on here? And you look right there on the page. What does it say? Does it say when you're angry, if you get angry? It says be angry. A lot of commentaries will admit that Paul seems to be talking about righteous anger, but then they very quickly, immediately say, yeah, but righteous anger is going to lead you to sin eventually, so don't do it. Well, wait, if it's righteous, how can it lead me to sin? Some point to verse 30, 31 where we read, let all anger be removed from you, and they say, well, there you go. Okay, well, then which is it? 
He doesn't say in verse 31, let all anger be removed from you by bedtime. As long as it's not, you know, as long as you're not angry while you're asleep, right? So we need to kind of just pause and think, what's really going on here? Is it remove anger right now because it's a sin, or is it anger's a part of life, so give it the rest of the day, and if you give it more than a day, the devil's going to get you. He can only get you if you go to sleep angry, and then he gets you, right? It's obvious that Paul is differentiating what he's identifying as anger and sin in verse 26, right? No matter how you take this, he's clearly making a differentiation, anger and sin, It seems that he's giving a command. It's not a settled thing for sure, but it seems there's a very good case to say, hey, he is commanding them to be angry about something. And as we look at the context, it seems that the Ephesian church may have been struggling with lying among one another, with theft among one another, with relational bitter resentment among one another. We know from Acts 20 when Paul came and talked to the Ephesian elders, what did he tell them? He said, listen, some men from within your own group are going to rise up and become what he called savage wolves who would seek to distort the truth and that they were gonna draw off sheep from the church. And so there's a very good case to understand verse 26 as Paul saying, be angry about the fact of such sin in your midst and do something about it. Don't wait But act now because if you don't act to deal with this sinful, uh, this open sin and this open division among your church, then Satan is going to establish a beachhead in your congregation. And isn't that exactly the kind of message he gave to the Corinthian church, for example? There was open sin happening and he said, excuse me, stop. You have to deal with this right now. You need to put this person out because if you don't, man, judgment's going to fall and, and, and discipline is going to happen and the church is going to be torn apart. Think about it this way. The Ephesians were told to put on Christ, right? Just a few phrases ago. In chapter 5, verse 1, they'll be told to be imitators of God. So here's a question, you Bible students. Does God get angry? Yeah. Uh, is it a sin when God gets angry? Is he allowed to get as angry as he wants? Yes, all of those things are true. When did Jesus get angry? Well, he got angry at the money changers who were defiling his father's house and putting barriers between God and man. He was angry at the Philistines that day in the synagogue when they tried to stop Jesus from healing a man on the Sabbath because they had no care or concern for that man with the withered hand. He was angry when the communion of God and man and believers together was obstructed or taken advantage of. So God's anger is against sin, and particularly we see Jesus was angry when the fellowship of believers with God was disrupted. And we know that from the Old Testament, God was angry at sin. He was angry at rebellion. He was angry when people refused to do what he asked them to do because he's a holy and righteous God. Now, anger is not... God's leading attribute. We're told he is slow to anger. Isaiah chapter 28 tells us it is his unexpected and unusual work. But at the same time, righteous anger is part of who he is. It is a response to injustice, a response to rebellion, a response to division. And 
So if we are putting on Christ, at some point there should be an element of righteous anger against sins that divide people from God and God's people from each other. That's what we need to act quickly on because when we don't, the the, the devil is able to get a foothold in a church. Paul's letters are full of exhortations to act quickly in response to open sin among the church body. Now, so that's what I think is going on here. It's not the only way of seeing it, but it feels like the most contextually uh, fair way of seeing it. And it's a way that doesn't just kind of sweep things away or, or cause us to interpret a passage in a way that we wouldn't interpret it if we pulled out this word and put in another word. But with that said, this is important, I think, because we live in very angry times. And so we need to always be differentiating man's anger from God's anger because man's anger is sin. Man's anger isn't profitable. We look at the book of James and it talks about man's anger is no help to us, no help to the church. It's something we need to put off. Stephen Fowle writes, anger cannot and should not be the Christian's constant disposition. And so let's not indulge ourselves in human anger towards things we don't like, things that we're annoyed by, things we disagree with, and then just pretend that it's righteous indignation. God's anger is not just about feeling mad. It is a response to injustice. It is a response to the breaking of communion. It is a response to those who would put an obstacle between God and man, and then he does something about it. There's one more hint that this is what Paul meant when he said to be angry and to not go to bed until you did something about it and not to give the devil a foothold because when we get to Jesus' letter to this church over in Revelation 2, here's what he says to them. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Interesting, Paul was just talking about lying and telling the truth, right? So it seems that the Ephesians over time were faithful to do something about the lying wolves that Paul warned them about back in Acts 20. They were provoked to do what was necessary to protect the life and the health of the body, and that was a good thing. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. So again, this seems to be a current problem. He doesn't say, some of you used to be thieves and now you're not. He's saying, hey, you thief who's listening to this message right now, you need to stop stealing. And remember, these Gentiles were coming out of a very different religious and ethical background than Jews or believers like us. And so he's giving them this lesson. He's like, you got to stop stealing. You can't do it anymore. Of course, stealing isn't just shoplifting or pocketing something that doesn't belong to you. That is stealing, but it includes uneven scales, leeching off of others when you're able to provide for yourself, not being honest on your taxes. We should take this verse to heart as we watch our society become more and more rife with theft as our country's leadership is saying, yeah, we don't really care about people stealing anymore. We're going to make it not really a crime anymore, and we're not going to do anything about it. When we see that shoplifters come in and loot a store, and then when the employees call the police, they're the ones that get fired, 
I mean, so this is a problem. (laughs) We need to be light in this dark world and salt in this decaying society, right? And so uh, we need to take this to heart. We need these basic reminders of what is right and what is wrong, what God says is good and what God says is evil, because woe to us if we call good evil and evil good. And that's exactly what our society is doing to a greater and greater degree around us. Why do people steal It's like lying. It's for self, right? I want something, so I take it. But the Christian life is oriented around others, loving your neighbor as yourself. So not only should we not steal, right, which is a good lesson that we need to learn, but notice what what the Christian life really is. This is the Christian life in practice. It's like not just not steal. We swing all the way to the other end where we now work ourselves to store up a surplus so we can give it to others. So there's a big difference. It's not just not steal and come to the middle where it's like, well, I didn't steal, and so I'm good. Well, that's great. You didn't steal. Paul calls us much beyond that in the power of God. He says, and now what I want you to do is spend your time working and investing and doing these things so that you have something to give, so that you are now a philanthropist to the world around you. Notice, though, Paul encourages us to share with those in need, not just in want. What's the difference? There is a difference. Just because something, someone wants something, it doesn't mean they need it. Okay, well, then who decides? That's a hard question. At the end of the day, if we're talking about principles of, of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit decides what a person needs. Because sometimes the Holy Spirit decided Paul the apostle did not need clothing, right? He said, often I was naked, often I was hungry, often I was beaten, often I was in chains, often I was shipwrecked. And the Holy Spirit said, yeah, that's right. In fact, I think you need one more shipwreck, my man. Okay, we're we doing this again? Yeah. So the Spirit decides what a person needs. And if we are using human rubric to decide what a person needs, it just, it it might be beneficial, but it might not be what that person really needs. When we decide, we tend to make arbitrary restrictive lists based off of our opinions, our experiences, but based off of human ideas and expertise, right? But in the Bible, we see There's all kinds of ways that God responds to needs or all kinds of things he identifies as needs that he uses his people to to walk in. Uh, He signs off on all sorts of things. A cup of water sometimes is what is needed. Uh, Sometimes it's medical care. Sometimes it's a warm welcome. Sometimes it's clothing. Sometimes it's borrowing a donkey for an afternoon. The Lord has need of it, right? Right? So the Spirit decides what the people around you need. And so here's the picture, that I'm an individual Christian. I'm living in in a way that honors God and walks with Him and follows after Him. And in my daily life, I'm trying to not only provide for myself and for my family, but if possible, I will try to store up if I can so that I can give to those in need. What do people need? Man, the, the Ethiopian eunuch didn't need a handout. He needed someone to talk to him. Uh, Jesus needed a donkey for his triumphal entry. Uh, the Lord says, hey, man, you give a cup of a cold water to somebody, you give a warm welcome to somebody who comes, I've called that a need, a spiritual thing. And so we need the Spirit to say, okay, here are the people around you. Some of them will have their hands out. Some of them you need to fill with this, that, or the other thing, and others you don't need to. And so, uh, so the Lord will show us through His Holy Spirit. 
Sometimes it's a box of presents for a child on the other side of the world, Operation Christmas Child, or giving somebody a ride when they're walking home in Hanford's 115-degree heat. So the Spirit knows and will guide, right? So our part is to prepare to share. That's, that's our job. It takes a willing mentality and, in some cases, a stored-up supply of physical resources. And so we want to orient our lives accordingly when possible. Verse 29, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building someone uh, building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. So just like our earnings can help those in need, so too our words can help those in need. Did you notice that Paul used in need for both wealth and words? Our words can be a conduit of God's grace and truth, and those can be just as helpful. Frankly, they can be much more helpful than a dollar or two in the pocket because truth sets people free and grace builds them up. It gives them strength for living. Since our words can be such a help for those in need, like a spring in a desert for a person dying of thirst, of course we don't want that spring to be defiled. We don't want anything foul to come out of it. Foul here literally can be translated rancid fish, rotten wood, withered flowers, diseased lungs. You pick the grossest one in your mind and now imagine it. He says, don't let that come out of your mouth. That's not helpful. And so the idea is that if I speak ungraciously, it is like a poison. And it's like stealing from a neighbor because that neighbor needs the refreshing, life-giving water of truth and grace that the Lord wants to pour out of my life. Verse 30, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. So Paul breaks in here with a reminder that life is not just about our conduct towards others. It's also about our closeness with God himself. Specifically, Paul talks to us about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He is our helper. He is our comforter, the one who's going to guide us in all truth. If you're a Christian here tonight, he permanently indwells your heart, and he is here with us right here, right now. And we need to remind ourselves of that and believe it because it's true. Did you know you can hurt him? Not in the sense that you could weaken him in any way, but you can hurt his heart. The root idea of the word grieve is to cause pain. And that's possible because he's a real person that you are in relationship with. He cares about you. He loves you. He's thinking about your life. He is attentive to your words and your activities and your choices. God has so much love for you, so many intentions and thoughts toward you. He has done so much on your behalf. And so when we then rebel against him, when we yank away from his tender embrace, when we stamp our feet in anger and dive into the filth of sin, of course it will bring our father sorrow. How could it not? God is a real person. He is a God who weeps. We've been singing that song. Blood and tears, how can it be? There's a God who weeps. And God does weep when we sin and when we pull away from him. He's a God of emotion, perfect emotion, of course, but he feels, he cares, and he cares about you. You see, it's not just that God has done a lot for us mechanically or theologically. It's not just that he has provided a bunch of awesome equipment and now we can kind of choose to wear it or not when we think we need it. It's that God is with us now. He is whispering to your heart tonight. He is taking up resident in you. He doesn't have to, but that's what he wants to do. 
He walks with us. He calls to us. He works in and through us. He attaches himself to us. He is bringing us to this final day of redemption where all will be made right. And we can right now either bring the Lord joy or grief. When we forget what God's plan is, when we forget what he has made possible in our lives by the power of his grace, when we fall back into that old nature and say, you know, you've given me this robe of righteousness, I would love to put on the filthy rags of the body of death for today. Of course, that's going to cause him grief. Verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. So these are things where to put off, remove, take them away. They're the old garments of the sin nature. The word remove can also mean weigh anchor. All you Navy people here, weigh anchor on these things. We're to sail our lives away from this stuff because they are incompatible with Christianity. But again, these characteristics define our culture right now. Every cable news show, every viral video, every political email, these are vices being sold to us as virtues. But it's like putting sugar in a gas tank. It's not a good idea. It's going to cause huge problems. It's incompatible. All of these attitudes are rooted in unforgiveness of others, which is why instead of being clothed in resentment and hatred, we should, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Who did Jesus Christ forgive? Well, he forgave the thief who was dying beside him, who spent some of his last breaths blaspheming the Savior of the world. Do you know how much of a of a chore it was for him to utter those blasphemies while he too was nailed to a cross, but he, he made the effort. He took the time. With each breath of agony, he said, you know what I'm going to do with this breath? Spit on this guy, blaspheme him for a while, and then he came to himself and realized, my oh my, this is the Savior of the world, and the Lord forgave him. He forgave Peter, his dear friend, who denied him three times. He forgave the rest of the disciples who abandoned their Lord when trouble came. He forgave the very people who pounded the nails into his hands and feet. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He forgave Saul of Tarsus, the writer of this letter, killer of Christians. He forgave you. He forgave me. He forgives anyone who will surrender to him and receive his gift of grace. Anyone. That's how big his mercy is. That level of compassion, that breadth of forgiveness is ours now to put on. That's the robe Christ gives us, the clothes of the kingdom. And we must put on this forgiveness, not only for the benefit of others around us and for the furtherance of the gospel, but because our forgiveness of others is tied to God's forgiveness of us. We don't have time tonight, but read it about it in the Sermon on the Mount and in the parable of the unforgiving servant. These are serious passages worth our study. People remember Mark Twain saying, clothes make the man. Actually, that's just a paraphrase of what he really wrote. Here's the full quote. One realizes that without his clothes, a man would be nothing at all. That the clothes do not merely make the man, the clothes are the man. That without them, he is a cipher, a vacancy, a nobody, a nothing. There is no power without clothes. The garments of Christ, the new self he has provided, and invites us to put on, they transform us into the people God has created us to be. There's no power without the clothes. You're nothing without the clothes. 
Without them, our lives wither. With them, we become part of something eternal, supernatural, magnificent, the ongoing work of God's grace. As he attaches us to lives around us and grows his church and accomplishes his good work in small ways and in great ways through your life, put on Christ.